0: Shortly after giving my life to Christ in college, I knew that God was directing me toward full-time ministry. I knew that was where He was leading me. I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Yet though that was obvious, though, though I knew God was calling me into ministry, I knew very little about ministry. Early on, I thought that salvation is a work that, that God does And ministry is a work that that only we do. It's what I thought. And, And shortly after being saved, I became prideful in ministry, thinking that the work of ministry was on me and the fruits that came from my ministry were because of me. I felt as if the work that was taking place in my life after salvation and the impact that I was having early on in ministry came as a result of my hard efforts and my great passion for God. Fortunately, God taught me the hard way that that was not the case. He did not let me continue in in ignorance in that way. He redirected me by allowing me to go through a difficult season of life so that I could see my need of Him. And also through teaching me in His Word, God showed me that ministry is not something I do by my own strength and on my own power. But it's something that He empowers me to do. It's something that He enables me to do. It's something that He does in and through me. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles turn to Acts chapter 2. We are continuing our series through Acts entitled To the Ends of the Earth and for the next few weeks we're going to be discussing one of the most important events in the history of Christianity. We're going to be talking about the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. And as we study this passage, though there has been a lot of ink spilled and trees killed and hours upon hours spent discussing and debating what takes place here in this passage and what it means for us today, and and though there have been many churches that have split and denominations that have formed due to different interpretations on the views on the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues addressed in Acts 2 and though I'm going to get into explaining my position on what I believe took place here and in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 10 and elsewhere and what it means for us today what is often missed when we read Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 is the fact that in this passage, Luke here gives us a great description of what Christian ministry looks like. Many often get hung up in this passage on explaining how salvation works and whether or not there's a separate experience for a believer after salvation from the Holy Spirit, or whether or not this was a special one-time occurrence that is not repeated today, and we lose sight of the fact that in the first part of of this chapter in in Acts two, Luke is showing us what ministry looks like. For the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about that. Now, for the last two weeks. We've been discussing the period of time before this great work of ministry began, right? The period of time right before and after Christ's ascension. And we have been discussing, we discussed a few weeks ago about how He was preparing His followers for this great work of ministry. And one thing we talked about, a unique thing that Jesus does is before He sends them out, He tells them, Don't do anything. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. He tells them that in a few days, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and He is going to be poured out in a special and unique way, and they're going to be empowered on high by Him. And Christ tells them, after this happens, you're going to receive power from on high by the Holy Spirit. Then, He says, you're going to go out and do ministry. You're going to go out and be my witnesses and take my message and advance God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. But only after the Holy Spirit comes. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit. In the beginning of Christian ministry in and through the church. And in this passage, once again, we get a great glimpse of what ministry looks like, what God's ministry is supposed to look like. And there are five points here that I draw out from this passage that gives us a, a better understanding of Christian ministry that we're going to discuss over the next couple of weeks as we look at this great passage. Here's what we learn about God's ministry from this passage. Now, we're not going to get to all these points today. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them to you right off the bat here, okay? These are the points we learn from this passage. Number one, we learn that the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's ministry. Number two, believers are the vessels used in God's ministry. Number three, the nations are the target of God's ministry. Number four, there is one of two responses to God's ministry. And finally, get this, the most important, Christ is is the message of God's ministry that's the outline but first let's look at the first point here number one the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's ministry that's point number one look at Acts chapter 2 verse 1 when the day of Pentecost arrived they were all together in one place stop there for a minute notice first the wind of this event notice when this took place Luke reports that it took place on the day of Pentecost. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Or in other translations it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. I like that translation a bit better. I think that's a better translation from the Greek. That's Because it's, it's written here in such a way to indicate that this event that took place on the day of Pentecost is brought about by God. And it occurs in accordance with His perfect timing. Just like when Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Luke is saying here, get this, at the right time, when Pentecost had fully arrived, God sent His Spirit. That's the idea here. Listen, folks. The Holy Spirit did not ultimately come as a result of the spiritual activity of the disciples. Many say that as a result of their obedience and because they were praying and earnestly asking and seeking for the Holy Spirit to come, God finally gave in and granted them what they asked. Some say the disciples forced God's hand by their godly activity and they summoned the Holy Spirit And we can have the same experience today if we'll earnestly seek it and ask for it and they appeal to Acts chapter 2 for support. Listen, folks, the Holy Spirit did not ultimately come as a result of what the disciples did. He was sent by the Father and came in accordance with His perfect plan and on His timing. We're told in verse 2, He came suddenly without... Warning they were just waiting and all of a sudden on this selected day God sent the spirit to them and it surprised every one of them now Let's take a moment first to discuss the significance of this day of Pentecost get this this is very important for you to understand There are three major feasts that occur on three important days in Christian history there is Passover the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks. Now most of you are probably familiar, if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with Passover, right? You know the story there. This was started... While the Jews were in Egyptian bondage, remember, God tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God starts sending plagues. But none of them are waking Pharaoh up, right? Until he sends the plague of all plagues. He takes the life of all the firstborn males in Egypt. But he tells his people, before he does this, if you want to be spared from this terrible plague, you must kill a lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost of your home. And if I see the blood, I'll pass over your home and your child will be spared. And that's exactly what happened. And you remember, because of that plague, God's people were freed. And on that evening, they ate a Passover meal and they ate one every year since as a reminder of God's great deliverance and how he had delivered them by his mighty hand. And we learn later in the scriptures that this event gives us a great picture of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ whose blood was shed for us so that we through him could be delivered from sin and death. And do you know what day... Jesus was put to death on what feast day? Anybody know? Passover. Exactly right. Right on the day. Another important feast was called the Feast of First Fruits. In the Old Testament, it was required by the Jews that before the harvest could be made, before you could could harvest your whole field and bring your crops in, you had to cut down the first fruits of the harvest and present them to the priest so that they could offer them up to the Lord as a sacrifice to him. So the first fruits is the first crop, the best crop given right off the top. It's the cream of the crop, the very best that you have. And the first fruits were also a sign of the coming harvest. They would cut these first fruits down, gather them up, present them before the priest and, and before God in hopes that there would be a greater harvest to follow. Do you know what day that feast was on? That feast was after the Sabbath, after the Passover. So get this. Jesus died on the Passover feast day on a Friday, then the Sabbath was on a Saturday, and the feast of first fruits was on the following day, the Sunday after Good Friday. And who can tell me what's significant about that day? It's a resurrection, right? No doubt, Paul had this in mind in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, when he said, Christ has been raised from the dead. Watch this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is using the picture of the Feast of first fruits to say Christ, the first, the best, the cream of the crop was raised first and His resurrection is a sign of the coming resurrection of all believers. Remember Jesus said, because I live, you will live also, right? Because Christ has been raised, we who are in Christ will be raised. The Feast of First Fruits pictures that. And then, 50 days after Passover, you had what was called the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the, the Feast of, of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. It's called Pentecost because in the Greek that means 50th. So, it's 50 days after Passover. And this was similar to the Feast of fruits in that they would go and they would gather the firstfruits of wheat. And they would gather them together and then they would do something very, very unique. They wouldn't just bring them together in a sheaf. You know what a sheaf is? It's just loosely gathered wheat tied together with string. They didn't do that. But instead, what they did was they would take it and they would gather it together and they would bake it in loaves. Some of you are probably thinking, okay, what's the significance of that? Well, get this. Folks, just like the Passover painted a beautiful picture of Christ's death, and the Feast of First Fruits was a great picture of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of our future resurrection, what was done on the Feast of Harvest paints a wonderful picture for us of what the Holy Spirit came to do at Pentecost. This is a great picture of the baptism of the holy spirit right here which we're going to talk about in more detail here in just a moment and next week get this at pentecost the holy spirit came and he entered into and indwelled these followers of christ in jerusalem and guess what he brought them together and he made them one in christ They were not just a loosely gathered group of people like these loose pieces of wheat that were tied together with string. But when the Holy Spirit came, get this, like those pieces of grain that were taken and gathered together and baked in bread, the Holy Spirit entered into believers on that day, brought them together, blended them together as one common body, as a universal body of believers. The church. Do you see that picture? So, like with Passover and the crucifixion and the feast of first fruits and the resurrection, the feast of harvest gives us a great picture of why the Holy Spirit came and what the Holy Spirit came to do. And I know that's a long, long footnote, but I want you to, to, to get a good picture of the work that the Holy Spirit came to do. And I also want you to see that this day was appointed by God from the beginning. The Spirit coming at this time on this day was not by accident, not by random chance or coincidence. This day was set by God in accordance with His sovereign timetable on the day of this significant feast, which He established, which gives us a great picture, an accurate picture, of what the Holy Spirit came to do to do so this event takes place during the feast of pentecost or the feast of weeks or the feast of harvest and that's the reason why we're going to learn later on in the text there are all these jews from all these other nations that are together in jerusalem at this time that's why they were there is for this feast And we're going to talk about that again more next week. But notice here, at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, we're told that a group of Christ followers were all together at this time in one place. Now, commentators differ over the place where it occurred. Some say, though Luke says house, he's referring to the house of the Lord, the temple. I don't believe that because... In other places in Acts, he mentions the temple specifically, and I think he would have mentioned that here. That would have been a very, very important detail if they are in the temple at this time when this is going down. Now, I believe they're meeting in a house somewhere in Jerusalem. It's a big house, and I'll explain why I believe it was a big house here in a moment. And it could have been the same house where they had the Last Supper with Jesus the night before he died, maybe the same place where he appeared to them after his resurrection, maybe the same place they returned to after Jesus' ascension. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. And commentators differ over who was there. Was it the 12 or was it all 120 that we learned were followers of Christ at this time at the end of Acts 1? I believe it was all 120 that's why I I think it was a big house and the reason why is because if this event get this signifies the beginning of the church the bringing together the blending together of the universal body of believers if this is the start right here why exclude 108 people 108 Christ followers I believe this event marks the beginning of the church and we know at this time there were 120 faithful followers and I believe they were all there, all baptized and dwelled with the Holy Spirit and made one body. So they're all in one place, all together when it happens. And look at what happens. Look at verse 2 of Acts 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting so picture this you have this large group of believers gathered together and we're told suddenly without warning on god's own timing there is this incredibly loud sound that came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the whole house and it filled everyone in the house right this right here folks i believe is the baptism of the holy spirit Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And here we have the fulfillment of that promise. And the Greek word, by the way, for baptism is baptizo, which means to immerse. That gives us a great picture of what this baptism of the Holy Spirit is, right? On that day, they were completely immersed, submerged, indwelt from the inside on out by the holy spirit i want you to notice something else here and some of y'all are going to disagree with me on this and you know what that's all right that's all right don't get angry at me just promise you're not going to leave here angry today okay if you disagree i'm going to give you your shot you can take shots of me outside not physical shots but verbal shots all right keep your hands in your pockets Uh, If you want to, okay, we can disagree agreeably on this, but I do want to encourage you to search the scriptures and make sure you have biblical grounds for the position that you hold. But I want you to notice this. I believe the scriptures differentiate between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit are two different things with different results when the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Scripture get this it refers to one's permanent spiritual identity whereas the filling of the Spirit refers to one's ongoing spiritual activity you see that? the baptism of the Holy Spirit declares you to be a certain way and the filling of the Holy Spirit enables you to live a certain way Paul talked about this in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about being sealed with the Spirit. That is a permanent spiritual state. You are sealed with the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 5, he says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to list all the fruits that come from being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. You're going to be thankful. You're going to submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. And all of this is going to result from you being spirit-filled. Let me explain a bit further, okay? Let's first talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are many who believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something to be sought, something that happens after salvation, and it's an experiential event experienced by some it manifests itself often often shows itself in it by speaking in tongues and the speaking of tongues but you know what I see when I study the scriptures I see the baptism of the Spirit is a very and you're gonna some of y'all are gonna disagree that's okay but I see the baptism of the Spirit is a very non-experiential thing for the most part and it's the the filling of the Holy Spirit that's accompanied by great works. Now notice I said the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an immediate non-experiential occurrence for the most part. Obviously not here in Acts chapter 2, am I right? In this account here, we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon these believers. He could be heard like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And notice what else? Verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. It's pretty incredible, isn't it, what took place? This is definitely a unique experience, right? Where you have an audible and a visible manifestation of, of God the Holy Spirit Moses had a similar experience when he saw the burning bush he had a visible and an audible appearance of God a manifestation of God he saw the burning bush and he heard the voice speak from the bush here we have the Spirit of God appearing in a special and unique way sounding like the rushing of a mighty wind and visibly as divided tongues like fire very unique but you know what We learn here in this this book, the book of Acts, that the disciples and the larger group of 120 experienced a lot of unique things in their day. They were commissioned directly by Christ. They saw Christ. They were commissioned directly by Him. Many of them saw Him die. They saw Him alive again and they watched Him ascend. Now, none of us in here can say that, right? Here they are eyewitnesses to a unique and miraculous and visible work of the Holy Spirit. But notice, so far, they've done nothing here. They haven't. This is all happening to them, right? God is the one doing the work here. He sends his spirit, and his spirit is indwelling them. He he indwells them, and he brings them together as one common body of believers. Listen, folks, this happens to us today when we turn over the reins of our life, when we make Christ Lord, and at times, this happens with little feeling at all. It does. Now, I've seen some experience a lot of emotion, but I've seen some not so much, but both are legitimate. When you make Christ the Lord of your life, though you're made right with God, the moment you make that decision, you become a child of God, you don't have this visible and audible experience, right? Where you hear wind rushing through your bedroom or see divided tongues like fire over your head. Just like you don't necessarily have this experience in these other aspects of salvation i mean we don't have this burning sensation inside of us and say oh that must be justification taking place or oh that chill down my spine that's that's adoption happening you know for the most part you know you've been forgiven you know you've become a child of god and that may make you emotional thinking about what God has done. But for the most part, get this justification being made right with God, adoption being brought into the family of God is a declaration God makes in His Word when we trust in Christ alone for salvation. And folks, that happens whether you get goosebumps or not. It does. I believe the same is true with the indwelling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's just the act by which God the Holy Spirit enters in to a person who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation and takes him or her, gets this, and places him or her into the universal body of believers. Which, by the way, is what the Feast of Pentecost that we explained earlier pictures. It pictures this work of the Holy Spirit taking us who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation and bringing us together in Christ. That's what he does. Listen to what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. You have this in your spiritual growth guide, by the way. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. Paul's just talking here about the body of Christ, the church. Then listen to verse 13. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And notice here what what this is. It's us being brought together by our faith in Christ as a universal body of believers. And notice Paul says in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now Paul's speaking to the Corinthians here, and you know, those of y'all that went through our series in 1 Corinthians, some of them are really struggling. That was one messy church. So he's not talking to just the super spiritual people in Corinth. He said you are all baptized. You were brought into the body, brought together by the spirit through your faith. You see, this is not a separate experiential experience for some, but a one-time event that occurs for everyone the moment they make Christ Lord. Get this. The moment you make Christ the Lord of your life, you're made right with God, justification. You become a child of God, adoption. And you're indwelt with the very Spirit of God and become a part of the universal church of God, baptism of the Holy Spirit. The moment you make Christ Lord You are indwelt with His Spirit and united with Christ through the Spirit and are grafted together with all other believers forever. And though this event in Acts 2 was accompanied by many great signs of God, though they heard and saw a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, they were indwelt on that day, get this, with the Holy Spirit and became one body, same as you, same as me, the moment we gave our lives to Christ. We're going to learn later on in this study about Paul's salvation experience. Now, those of y'all that are familiar with that, you know he had a very unique experience, right? Different from you and me. He had a direct encounter with the risen Christ. He heard his voice from heaven. He was knocked to the ground and blinded afterwards. Now, we didn't have that kind of salvation experience, did we? But you know what? We came to Christ same as Paul by turning from our sins and by making Christ lord of our lives same as paul so the baptism of the spirit is when we move from being empty and outside the family of god to being baptized in and dwelt with the very spirit of god and brought into the family of god and though it was delayed in acts 2 8 and 10 it's not for us today and i'll discuss next week why i believe it was delayed in that day but I want you to notice something else here as well. This coming of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a direct fulfillment of Scripture and an answer to prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. Remember in John 16 and 17, Jesus is telling his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and then he prays for them to be one, right? He actually prayed this four times in Acts 17. In verse 11, verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23. And that's what happens right here at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and these believers are made one. Not just a loosely gathered group of people, but a unified body of believers held together with one spirit and led by one head, the Lord Jesus. And folks, this is a permanent thing. When you're brought into the body of Christ, you're not in a while and out a while. You're in forever. When, when the Spirit comes to indwell you, you're, He's not in a while and out a while. He is in you forever. So the Holy Spirit, He does an incredible work here, doesn't He? He indwells these believers. He unites them to Christ brings them together in him and this work here is what enables Christ's disciples and his church to then go out and take his gospel out and advance his kingdom all over the known world they do it together they do it of one accord and they do it in the power of the one holy spirit we're going to see that all throughout the book of Acts said a few weeks ago that many argue that Jesus took a risk by leaving this great work in the hands of ordinary men and at first glance it looks as if he did right because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 he gives them this enormous assignment this great assignment and then in verse 9 he leaves but what we learn here. The first part of Acts 2, what we've been learning through Acts chapter 1, what we're going to learn throughout this book is that the confidence that Jesus has in Acts chapter 1 is not just in these men and women, but it's in the work of His Holy Spirit in and through these people, in and through His followers. The Holy Spirit, folks, is the power behind God's gospel ministry. And it's His work. That is highlighted throughout this book. That's why I said a better title of Acts should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit because his name is mentioned 40 times in these 28 chapters alone. I think Luke is trying to emphasize something. Wouldn't you say so as well? Yeah. A problem we have today, though, is we often fail to recognize this great work of the Holy Spirit, and we fail to see our need of Him. Though He is very much at work, we don't see Him and hear Him and experience Him like they did in Acts 2. And because that's the case, His work often goes unseen and it's unnoticed by us. We don't give Him the credit that is due Him when it comes to the fruits that come from God's ministry. We see the fruits from ministry and we think, man, I'm doing great, (laughs) right? Look at all the stuff I'm doing. Look at all the stuff he's doing, she's doing, they're doing. We fail to acknowledge God's empowering agent behind his message and his messengers and his ministry, the Holy Spirit. Though he at times continues to work in spite of the fact that we don't acknowledge him, we need to recognize his work and see our need of it we need to thank him for it, praise him for his person and work, for the fact that he empowers us, God's people, to do great things for God and for the cause of Christ. Listen, if God's ministry were on our shoulders, I've said this before, we're sunk. We're sunk. This great work were left to us alone, God's ministry would be in jeopardy. We're in need of. Of power from on high we're in need of his Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's ministry well we got through one point and three verses (laughs) That's about as far as we're gonna go today all right we got four more and a lot more to do next week so we got a lot of ground to cover but I think we've laid some good groundwork here for next week and I promise we will finish next week Um, Next week I'm going to talk more about the filling of the Holy Spirit and and, uh, we'll make a distinction between that and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're also going to be talking about the gift of tongues. So don't miss that, all right? That should be fun. But before we close today, let me end with this, all right? It's important for you to realize that before you can be empowered on high, by the Holy Spirit, before you can become a vessel for God's great ministry, which we'll talk more about next week. Listen, for that to happen, you must first be made right with God and become a child of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus said this. He said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Folks, before we can do anything for God, we must first be made right with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you have not come to the point in your life where you have turned from your sin and given your life up and over to the Lord Jesus, if you're not abiding in Him and Him in you, if you're not trusting in Him, if Christ is not in you, you can do nothing, nothing for God this is you listen you need Jesus you need Jesus you need to respond to him in faith if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation I pray 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 you would not leave here today without doing so let's pray